and welcome to this Sound on Sound podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White. Once again, you've caught me taking a break in Turkey where I've been finishing off the graphics for a book based on our Studio SOS series. The graphics package that I'm most familiar with now only runs an old PowerPC series Max, so I made the jump and bought iDraw from the Apple App Store. It costs less than £18, and yet it does 90% of what my old program used to do, and for around 5% of the price. Indeed, it does some things rather better. Clearly this was a good result for me, but I can't help wondering if the whole app thing is distorting the user perspective of what software is actually worth. I've seen reviews in the App Store where users have quibbled about having to pay £2.99 for an app and then they thought it should only be £1.99. Of course, the real reason the developers can keep the prices as low as they can is that they can sell to a much wider market base and in the area of music recording, the apps are often spin-offs from existing programmes. Taking the longer term view though, it seems that both software and hardware is going to continue getting more consumer, both in pricing and facilities, and while I applaud the fact that you can now run a multi-track sequencer on an iPad, I'm also rather concerned that the day may soon come when all these companies previously putting their efforts into serious music software will switch their focus to low cost, but maybe more profitable, simplified apps aimed at the mass market. The same concerns apply to hardware, especially if you're an Apple user, as Apple is now clearly a consumer products company with proper desktop computers accounting for a relatively small part of its income. Already, Logic Studio has been broken up into sections and is sold via the App Store, and my nightmare is that one day we'll hear the news that Logic has been absorbed into GarageBand Pro and is no longer available as a professional package. We're always told that progress is a good thing, but at the rate it occurs in the consumer market, It doesn't bode well for long-term stability if you're trying to set up a serious music studio. Dipping into our reader postbag, first off a reader asks, These days there's a lot of attention paid to getting audio tracks in phase, but this didn't seem to be an issue in the days of tape when there was no facility to do that, yet there were still some great songs produced back then, so why are we so concerned about it now? that's a fair question and in part I think the answer is that now we have more tracks at our disposal so we tend to layer multiple sounds more often than we did in the past when we only had a few tracks of tape to play with. Now whenever you layer sounds, especially bass sounds, the relative timing and polarity of the layers is important if the resulting sound isn't to suffer low-end loss through phase cancellation. By looking at the waveforms to ensure they're both of the same polarity and then adjusting the timing so that the peak of the first waveform lines up between the two tracks you'll retain the maximum low-end punch. Another reason this is so important now is that today's musical genres tend to rely much more on a solid bass foundation than records made at the end of the last century. If you go back and think of what we thought was a good mix back in the 60s and 70s, the bass guitar and kick drum tended to sit way back in the mix, but not anymore. Now the rhythm section of a track is often its strongest feature. Next up, we have a reader asking how you know when you have your mix properly balanced. That's actually not an easy question because in pop music there is no one definitive correct answer. It's more about art than it is about science. In very general terms, the vocals should be clearly audible, the drum part should have a natural balance with the bass instruments and everything else should sit in there comfortably. The other instruments should retain their individuality rather than blending into a sonic mess and they should also leave space for the vocal. The danger area really is the low mid-range where so many sounds overlap, so if the mix sounds somewhat muddy, try cutting some of the instruments in the 150-300 to Hz region, as that can really help clarify things. Also take out the extreme lows from any tracks that aren't contributing to the bass part. 
And finally, it can be very easy to lose perspective when you're sitting in front of the speakers for a long period of time. So when you think the balance is close, listen to your mix from the next room with the door open and then listen to some commercial tracks of a similar style from the same position. This is a surefire way of locating any parts of the mix that are too loud or too quiet. Things really jump out when you're listening from outside of the room. But ultimately, the only rule is that the end result has to sound appealing. Finally, we're asked, what's the best way of making a location speech recording from an acoustically imperfect room, such as a hotel bedroom? Well, that's a very pertinent question, as that's exactly the situation I find myself in now when recording this podcast. Outdoors, it's far too noisy, yet the hotel room is painted concrete walls and very reverberant. Unless you have the luxury of portable commercial screens, the only way forward is to improvise with whatever's available. Fortunately, you don't have to treat the whole room, only the area around the microphone. If there's a duvet on the bed, you can hang it up over the wardrobe door or a cupboard door and work with your back to that, perhaps propping up a couple of pillows behind the mic in a V-shape to soak up reflected sound from the rear and sides. If the wardrobe is well filled with clothes, you could also open the doors and take advantage of that as an absorbent surface. In fact, the setup I've got here is that I've got the wardrobe doors open with blankets hanging over both doors to cover the side of the mic and the inside of the wardrobe is full of hanging clothes so it's given me a little three-sided booth. The other alternative, and one I've resorted to on occasions, is to put a couple of chairs on the bed and then drape all the bed covers over the chairs to form a small acoustic tent. Again, you can put pillows behind the mic for extra screening. The other really important thing, as I found out, is not to miss out of your packing the USB lead for the little microphone. So I'm having to record this using the internal mic on the laptop, which is less than ideal. I've got a lovely little USB mic, but sadly the manufacturers didn't see fit to put enough space in the little pouch for it to hold the cable. And so whenever I take it somewhere, the chances are I'm going to forget the cable. When mixing the speech part you've recorded, a gate or expander can be used to pull down any room ambience by a few dBs in the pauses between phrases, and SPL's Dverb plugin is quite effective for this, and that's easy to use too. Well, again, that's all we've got time for. The blue pool and the cool beer is just too inviting, so thanks for listening, and let's catch up when I get back home. (laughs) 